Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Indoor Air Quality Radio is broadcast from coast to coast and around the world over the Internet. Today's broadcast is episode number 164, and today is Friday, April 23, 2010. My name is Cliff Slotnick, known as the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes will be participating remotely from Studio C in Indian Lake, Pennsylvania. And the intrepid environmental Ann Koalecki is in the studio and at the controls. Hey, Cliff. Okay, today's segments include the Microband Trivia Question, an interview with today's guest, Greg Orndorff Sr., a new segment from Radio Joe, comments by our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and the Roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with Environmental Annie and the Wingman, have been working on the iqradio.com website. We add to the website each week, and we post a blog after every show. We've changed the invitation and news announcement from IQ Radio and the IQ Training Institute, and we hope that you like the new look and improve functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, simply call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and you're, you're on the show. You can download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. You can also get the show through iTunes. You can obtain your IICRC continuing education credits, ACAC renewal credits, and now ABIH credits by emailing 
Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man. My email address is cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iqtraining.com. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, April 23rd, 2010. The subject matter for this week's trivia question comes from the field of military history. Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson was one of the most honored generals of the American Civil War. The Confederate general died as a casualty of the war. What was the manner and cause of his death? Okay. Uh, Greg Orndorff Sr. was born in 1935 in Stevens City, Virginia. Greg and his family lived there until 1960 when Greg graduated from Virginia Tech with a B.S. in building construction from their Tech Architectural School. Shortly after graduation, Greg and his parents moved to Manassas, Virginia, while Greg went to work for the Gregory Construction Company. In 1961, Greg married and met the beautiful Betty of Reedsdale, North Carolina, and they made their home in Manassas as well. In 1969, Greg saw an opportunity to open a janitorial service in this growing area, and in less than six months, his growing part-time business became full-time. Greg and Betty had four children, two boys and two girls. Today, three of the four new families are involved in the business. Gregory is CEO, Paxton is vice president, and Tom, the husband of their youngest daughter, is the president. There are today 10 grandchildren, and everyone lives within six miles of the office, and the grandparents, Greg, and all of his family count their blessings every day. How about some introductory music for Greg? Okay, Greg. Well, let's get the history out of the way. Historically, what's important about Manassas, Virginia? Good morning, Cliff. Good morning. I, I certainly did appreciate uh, appreciate the introduction, and I'm sure Lee and all the boys appreciated it. We do. But anyway, the, the most important thing about Manassas, and it, I'm sorry to say this, so few people remember it anymore, is the first battle of Manassas. It was really the first battle of Bull Run, and that's where we won a decisive battle against the North, and I thought the war would end there, but it didn't. Yeah, unfortunately for everyone, it, 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 it didn't. Okay, well, how old are you today, Greg? 75. And do you run your business from behind a desk in the office? As you know, I don't have a desk. I, I think <laughs> uh, David Young will be on your program today, and he'll verify. I don't have a desk in the office. Okay, well, are you out in the field? 
every day. Okay, cool. Well, what's the name of the business, and what services does your business currently provide? Well, we started in 1969. I, I was under this uh, in the state of Virginia. The name of the corporation is Master Maintenance Incorporated, and we're trading as A1 Flood Tech today. Uh, we provide commercial drying. Okay, Joe. Great. I- Welcome to IAQ Radio, and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Joe. And uh, I, I didn't, I heard a lot of the introduction. I missed the part. I thought I heard um, Cliff mention that you had a, you'd gone to Virginia Tech. Is that correct? Right. Okay. And was it, were you in a building sciences program or something like that? I got a degree in. Um, uh, it's called building construction. Actually, when I started at Tech, I crammed uh, six years of college into. I started out in mining engineering, and uh, probably before you were born, uh, back in the early uh, 56, 57, the bottom dropped out of the coal industry, and we couldn't give the coal away. I worked over in Bluefield, West Virginia, and so that following year when I went back to tech, I changed from mining engineering over to building construction in the School of Architecture and and graduated with a degree in building construction. Well, that's fascinating to me. Now, did you do some uh, building prior to starting the janitorial service back in '69? Right. I, I worked for a general contractor for about 15 years, and the reason I've got out gotten out of or got out of that is uh, I was doing a punch list in a building, a Leggett's department store, and uh, we completed the project. But we were doing the odds and ends, and you call a punch list uh, where they come through with you and show you items that you haven't done correctly or they'd like something done differently. Mm-hmm. And the manager of that store said, you've talked while you were here building this, that you were going to do something on the side. Why don't you start a janitorial service? And that's where Master Maintenance Incorporated came in. I started that janitorial service in that building. And when Cliff was talking about six months, I did that part-time and then it, I'd given my uh, employer notification that I would be leaving, and and then after six months I left and became a full-time professional janitorial service. Well, I'll let Cliff continue, but I, sure. I will have a question on what your thoughts of uh, modern construction are today in a little bit. Okay. Um, well, let's go back and, you know, you, you started this business and you offered, you know, janitorial services. Uh, did you have a big marketing budget? You know, um, how did you attract business? It was absolutely word of mouth. You know, I lived in an area where basically it was a small country area. You knew everybody, and once somebody found that I was cleaning one building, another building that we had built, they called and said, you know, why don't you provide a service for us? And it just kind of grew by word of mouth. It didn't do any advertising. What about when you expanded in the carpet cleaning? Did you do any advertising or do anything unique or different then? Well, you know, truthfully, a janitorial service, you can't start until about 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening. At uh, some of the buildings we were doing, we couldn't start until 9, so I'd go to work at 9 and work all night and come home at 4 or 5 in the morning and go to bed, and I'd always gotten up at 6 o'clock, and I would get up, and I'd have the day. I didn't have a damn thing to do, and uh, so I told my wife I was going to get started something on the side, and I started cleaning carpet. And um, I went to a distributor here in the Washington area and bought a 
I started out with an advanced machine, a dry foam machine, mm-hmm. and I realized that that wasn't doing a very good job. And then I bought a uh, Clark shampooer, and I used to shampoo, and I was always wondering where the dirt went. And uh, what we really developed was a process where we would vacuum the carpet, shampoo it, and I used something you will probably remember. It was deep steam extraction, that old right. coffee pot thing. Yep. had two stainless steel tanks. We would rinse it. And we started off, uh, we called ourselves the carpet posse. And I dressed up like a cowboy, and uh, we wore ridiculous outfits, but it, it, it was something they had caught on. I can't remember the guy's name up in New England somewhere. He had started out, he called it uh, one at Dead or Alive, fiber cutter grit and colored velvet grime. And I made a reward poster and I put that on every telephone pole in Northern Virginia. And the first year I was, the first 12 months we did that, uh, we did $87,000 worth of carpet cleaning part time. Wow. Did, did you just wear the uniform when you were marketing the business, or did you actually wear the, the cowboy outfits? I wore that when I, I would just wear that, you know, uh, it was uh, very simple. I had a uh, cowboy hat, and I had a badge made that said the sheriff. It really said the carpet posse. It was a ridiculous kind of a deal, but uh, it caught on. People would call and say, son, I want the carpet posse to come out and clean my carpet. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it worked. No, I, I think it sounds brilliant, actually, because, you know, you did a lot of volume, and you didn't have to have big yellow page advertising and, and that sort of thing. Well, Never how, had it. How did you get into uh, the field of insurance repair, Greg? And when was that? Well, it's um, – I'd been in business all three or four years, and um, I had a guy that was – I'd. I'd hired a salesman. He actually came from a guy by the name of Jim Evans. I, I don't know if that rings a bell with you, but he owned. Uh, he actually manufactured the deep steam extraction equipment here in America. It was mm-hmm. up in Redding, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And he had a guy by the name of Wallace Medlin that would call on people trying to sell that equipment. And he came and sold me the equipment, and he realized I didn't have a salesman. And uh, he said, you know, why don't I go to work for you and sell carpet cleaning commercial carpet cleaning. I said, all right, and uh, we started off that way. That's uh, the only way that we promoted that was through Wallace. Those machines were pretty expensive back then. I think they were like, what, five, $6,000? About $5,500. Yeah, that was yeah. a lot of money. In, uh, and what year that was That was actually developed in Canada. I'm sure you probably know more about that, but that sure. machine came out of Canada. Right. Somebody had developed that up there. And I think originally they wanted to develop it for dyeing carpet initially, and then they found that there was a better market for, uh, you know, for cleaning. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, over the course of your – so how did you get into – did you get a, actually have a fire restoration project or a flood that – Oh, well, that, that, yeah, I lost the train of thought. I, so I had Wallace – and he went. He came in one day, and he said, "I've got a five hundred dollar job." And back then, you know, thirty five years ago, that was a right good sized carpet cleaning job. I said, "You know, that's a hell of a lot of carpet clean." And he said, "No, it's a fire job." And uh, so we we cleaned up. It was a loss for uh, Virginia Farm Bureau, and it, it should have been about a five thousand dollar job rather than five hundred. Mm-hmm. We cleaned that house so daggone well that they didn't actually have to seal it. Mm-hmm. 
And the adjuster came and talked to me about it and said, you all did a phenomenal job. And I'd never heard of a supplement back then. So I lost about, I, I lost maybe $1,500 on that deal, but I, I made up my mind I'd learn how to do it, and we did. Well, I, and then I, I, we, we started it. I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Go ahead we started, a, we start, then we started a company right after that event, and we called it Firemaster. And we, we really went after the insurance work. We, we did a lot of cleaning initially, and with my construction background and the cleaning as, as far as the janitorial, it led me into doing fire work. So what we this, did that for about 30 years. Yeah, what the supplemental payment is, is is when, you know, for instance, if there's unforeseen damages or unforeseen circumstances, it's the ability to go back to the insurance company and explain to them why you're deserving of, of, of more money, and oftentimes you'll get it, correct? Right. Okay. Well, I, I had not heard of that, <laughs> but I didn't, let, I didn't have that happen again. Well, so it sounds to me you like that. You, early as, <laughs> you let, didn't let history repeat itself, huh? No, absolutely. I learned very quickly how to do that. Yeah. They, yeah. You know, the, Can I ask a follow-up here, Cliff? Sure, Jim. Uh, I'm just curious, Greg, um, back when you first did your first fire job, and, and I don't recall the year, what year was that again? Well, you know, that that had to be about 35 years ago, so... Uh, about seventy-five, somewhere in there. Seventy-three, seventy-four, somewhere in there. And and I got the impression from what you're saying that it was more common to um, to kind of cover up the the damage as opposed to actually removing it and, and cleaning out the other. You know, honestly, Joe, we were really into cleaning, and so we cleaned uh, that very first job. There was smoke in the attic. And Cliff will appreciate this. The shingle nail had ex- uh, had penetrated the sheathing and was mm-hmm. down in the attic area, and that was the hardest part to clean. That underside of that sheathing, right. we we spent hours up in that attic cleaning that that surface. And uh, you know, when I did that, there really wasn't any fire and smoke restoration, as such. Uh, the first. Uh, the first event that I attended was back when RIA was actually called the National Institute of Carpet Cleaning. And that organization was mainly run by plant cleaners. And on-location carpet cleaners were kind of a stepchild. And I went to uh, uh, my first meeting was in Vegas, and then my second meeting was in Chicago. And uh, they they didn't talk about fire and smoke back then. They talked about purely carpet cleaning. But uh, there weren't many people around talking about fire in in the early 70s. So you physically cleaned the underside of the roof deck with, what, scrub brushes and detergent? Absolutely. Cliff, we cleaned that damn sheathing clean enough that they didn't have to seal it. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't a real hot fire. It was more like a puff back where the residue was, you know, it was cleanable. But that was a very difficult surface to clean. You know, Greg, I mean, you know, considering the the alternative back then was to make it look like a mirror by spraying aluminum paint all over it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, that that's the truth, yeah. yeah I remember yeah. those days. And that stuff was electrically yeah. conductive, too. It was, uh, <laughs> we, we used to do some pretty scary, scary things back then. Well, over the course I of... 
you know, you went from fire restoration, and did you do any other diversifications like after that? Where did you know where did your business travels take you next? Well, you know, we've we've done so many things. I think that uh, one of the things uh, after Carpet Master and Fire Master, uh, we started something called Paint Master. It didn't last very long. Uh, we got into uh, uh, Solid Flu. That was the dealership that came from England over here, um, where uh, sometime back when the uh, oil crunch hit this country, uh, people started using a lot of wood to heat their houses, and they would um, buy those wood stoves and put them in a firebox that really wasn't designed to handle that. And they would build a fire and then they would choke that thing down in the daytime when they weren't there and it would just sit there and smolder and that, that it didn't have enough draft to get the uh, uh, flu to really work and that the discharge from the burning items would just kind of drift up through there and you get condensation on the the tile, and that would create creosote, and in the night they would come home and open that damper to get that fire going so it would heat the house, it would ignite that creosote, and you'd have a chimney fire and crack the liner, and then that system was developed to go down and take the liner out and put a, a bladder down, blow it up, and then pump a solid fluid around it. Did that for about seven or eight years. Uh, still did the fire work, but that was kind of part of it. Mm-hmm. Then we set up a company called Ace Duct Cleaning, still under master maintenance, and uh, we we started cleaning ducts seriously after we did a very serious fire over in Washington, over on Mass Avenue. We did the National Rural Electric Building. It was about 50,000 feet to a floor, had a huge uh, uh, air handling system in it, and I had... Um, I never can remember Gene's last name. Madison. Gene Madison. That's the name of the past. Um, I had met Gene at one of the conventions, and I thought he'd put the stars in the sky, or at least he he seemed to know everything, and I got him to come down and help me do that. And once we did that, then we were off and running. And we did a lot of duck cleaning, a lot of commercial duck cleaning. Several years ago, I started something called Clean Pack under Firemaster, where we developed a little do-it-yourself kit for the homeowners. Uh, when I really got started in the fire work, um, I had a good alliance with Virginia Farm Bureau. I did most of their uh, fire work, but they would send me out to a house uh, 75 or 80 miles from Manassas, and I'd get there, and it would be so damn small that we we just couldn't do it uh, economically, and I would give them some. I'd give them a couple of sponges and some cleaner and some wood cleaner, and I would tell them how to clean up their own loss. And I would call the adjuster and tell them, you know, send the guys a couple of hundred dollars to go do their own loss. And I I, I probably settled a couple of hundred of those in 25 years. And I finally talked to Virginia Farm Bureau. I was explaining that if I owned an insurance company, I'd have a kit that clean up those small offices, their maintenance offices. And we did that for seven or eight years and sold about 35,000 of those kits. And, and we got in. 
early on, way back when I really got started, we probably had the first ozone in America. I got it from a company called Air Purification of America out of Columbus, Ohio. And uh, we set up a little, uh, we actually got to the point where we manufactured some ozone equipment and we would rent that on a monthly uh, rental base to uh, hotels and motels. And uh, then it all came down to finally where we're, for the last seven, well, five and a half years, six years, we've been A1 flood tech. You know, I don't know if you get uh, Greg, can I, can I ask a quick question here? Uh, sure. When, when you did the duct cleaning, and um, I, I also want to mention that a gentleman who bought your equipment said to say hello, Tim Hoiser. Oh, okay. Uh, while I was doing my research this week, I, I found that you uh, actually sold some equipment to Tim. But I'm curious, um, did you get out of? Why did you get out of the duct cleaning business, or have you even? I'm not even positive. Do you still do that type of work? No, we we don't. We. Um... With the drying side, there's not as much need, but every once in a while we'll have a building that uh, the duct system is impacted, and we we bring in a uh, a subcontractor that does duct cleaning to address that. But uh, the reason we got out of it, um, I think that, um, that, you know, it's like so many things. It, it's like carpet cleaning. It's so easy for somebody to get into the carpet cleaning business if they can buy a, a shampoo and a vacuum and put it in the back of a pickup truck or something. They're carpet cleaners. And it makes it very difficult on the industry because they really don't bring a good product or a good service to the marketplace. And with duct cleaning, once it started, uh, there was a lot of um, early on. We, we actually attended the first NADCA convention at West uh, when all the big decisions were made, and it looked like it was really good to fly and be a great organization, but um, along the way, it, it so many things have changed, and so many people have gotten in it that really don't know what they're doing, and, you know, duct cleaning is kind of an intangible. When you try to sell duct cleaning, not many people can look into the ducts and see really how how dirty they are. But if if there was a better way of presenting duct cleaning than they do today, everybody in America would have the ducts cleaned because most of them need it. You know the the, ama- the amazing thing, Greg, is you know when you went into deep steam carpet cleaning, that was like fifty five hundred dollars for that piece of equipment. And I've known you over the years, and when you did these things, they tended to be pretty expensive. You know, diversifications, you know, duct cleaning, that was many thousands of dollars, and uh, that chimney relining system. And it seemed like you, right. you're pretty good at picking winners, I mean, in terms of, um, right. you know, diversifications. And I guess there's a time, you know, to get in to these things, and there's probably also uh, a That's time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I'll tell you one thing. I think you're a risk taker, and one thing about you is you're certainly what they call an early adopter. I mean, you know, you've kind of seen technology all over the world and been uh, one of the first or the first person to uh, get involved with it. We're just about halfway through our interview, so what we're going to do now is we're going to pause. Please, Greg, hang on. We're going to thank our sponsors and get some comments from Dieter and then go back and uh, do the second half of the interview. Okay. 
the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Dr. Dieter Wah. Hi, Dieter. Yeah, hi there. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I joined you a little bit late. I was on a, on a, on a business phone call uh, on a job that I worked on quite some time ago. There's very little I can really add to today's uh, uh, discussions. I, uh, yeah, I'm not a duck cleaner. I know something about particles and particle behavior. And I know what's happening over England with this... Uh, 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 eruption from Iceland, mm-hmm. and I can tell the people what the particle size is up in the air, but um, I'm not very good at uh, yeah, restoration and so on. Um, perhaps the only thing that I can say is, um, in many instances, uh, you may have to watch it. I have seen people going in there and what was the fire and they didn't know what was burning and they came out and barely could breathe and almost collapse because there was something in the air i don't know what it was it was a, a combustion product decomposed material i don't know what it was and uh, some of them are quite nasty so you just can't go in there and say, hey, let's scrape all of that stuff off and uh, let's get rid of it and paint over it and we are done. So those are things that I think are, are topics which have to be considered uh, when you look at uh, fire and fire restoration uh, 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 problems. Okay. Dieter, Dieter this is Joe. Oh, um, Dieter, you, you missed the very beginning, and I thought you would find a part of Greg's history uh, very interesting to you. He uh, actually got his first degree in mining engineering uh, from Virginia. I have no problem with that. <laughs> I don't want to take my head off, my heart head off. I know. I have a funny feeling the conversation. You're every coal miner in the world, I tell you. And you know, 
said a couple of months ago, I spent a long time, three days underground. And fortunately, the uh, the mine didn't blow up. Uh, but uh, like I said, that is an interesting environment. And uh, what we have done to the coal mining industry in the last 40 years, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling how safe it has gone. Unfortunately, there was the accident in uh, West Virginia not too long ago. And I sit here with my mouth open. How the hell did that happen? He's a fire boss. We have wonderful instruments. We don't have to take a canary down there anymore. Why the heck didn't find somebody out uh, uh, or figure out or measure it, uh, methane, and said, hey, guys, here's the problem. And I know that the mines, the coal mines in West Virginia, uh, they are known to have a heck of a lot of uh, methane in it. And that's why we have massive ventilation to keep it below the explosive uh, limits. Well, we'll have to get Greg's comment when he comes back on that. And I have also, I know also something about rock dust. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I did the last three days in the coal mine. Oh, can we bring you back to the uh, roundup? Oh, uh, absolutely. My Greg. phone calls. Uh, yeah. In fact, in fact, uh, the reason why I was late is. The report came in, and we discussed the report, and I couldn't hang up on it. Uh, that was a report on coal mine. So that's that's what happened. Well, thanks for joining us again. Joe, you want to do your news item? I do, Cliff. I want to follow up on um, a news uh, item that uh, Indoor Environment Connections brought to us about three weeks ago. There was quite a bit of... Um, activity around the uh, lead renovation repair and painting rule that was uh, to go into effect on April 22nd. At that point in time, Glenn Thelman reported that EPA was uh, holding fast to that April 22nd deadline to have the training and to be um, uh, registered, I guess it would be, with the EPA before disturbing any lead-based paint in uh, what they call target housing, which is pre-1978 housing, and um, EPA did hold to their uh, hold to their stick to their guns, uh, in spite of a lot of pressure from the uh, national associations on uh, home builders and remodelers, etc. Uh, they came out with the release and uh, the renovation, repair, and painting rule, which was actually finalized back in April of 2008 under the Residential Lead-Based Paint Hazard Reduction Act, which was actually finalized in 1992 under the first Bush administration, requires that contractors performing renovation, repair, and painting projects that disturb lead-based paint in homes, child care facilities, and schools built before 1978 be certified and must follow specific work practices to prevent lead contamination. The rule is fully in effect as of Thursday, April 22, 2010. It is an important part of the federal government's overall strategy for eliminating childhood lead poisoning. EPA issued the lead RRP rule because of a disturbing number of American children are still being poisoned by lead-based paint in their homes, leading to learning and behavioral disorders. Uh, the rule is in effect if people have attended the training and they have not received their... Uh, their certification back from EPA or their notification from EPA that they've been approved. EPA did say that as long as they've sent it in, they can go ahead and 
do the work. Uh, they don't because it's going to be a little bit of a backlog until at least uh, June before they get back to everybody. So many people were complying at the last minute. So just a quick update on the lead renovation rule. It's in effect. Don't disturb lead-based paint in pre-1978 housing um, unless you've got the proper certifications. Okay. All right. Well, let's get back to Greg. Greg, let's talk about uh, some philosophical issues, one of which is fire chasing. I know some restoration companies just relied on insurance company referrals. Others, you know, were a little bit more aggressive. Um, what was your philosophy on that? Uh Cliff, no, we we did not chase chase the fire trucks like so many people do. Um, we didn't have um, any kind of communication. Uh, we didn't have a a radio in the shop that monitored uh, their calls. But we we did build a relationship with uh, most of the fire chiefs in, in the northern Virginia area back when I got started. Most fire departments were volunteer, and uh, as you know, in the state of Virginia, when a fire occurs, the fire chief is actually responsible for that site, and when he arrives, uh, he really is held responsible for anything that will occur there, so he has a vested interest in, in that, that loss. And um, back in those days, uh, the volunteers would try to do the board-ups and things like that. And it was something, you know, that was it could be very difficult to do. So I sold uh, or I convinced them to call us and we would come out and do that board-up. And uh, we bought some old ambulances and normally fires, uh, I don't know about in your area, but so many fires occur at night and it's always dark. Uh, you had to have a lot of lights, so we rigged those ambulances up with floodlights and things, and we would go out and do the board up. And so many times the homeowner or the insured really thought we were part of the fire department, but I would explain that we were a service that been notified to come out and just do a temporary closing so that it would secure the property. And that's the way we developed a really good relationship with the fire departments and, of course, for ourselves. And, and I might add, we, we were... 35 years ago or 40 years ago in Northern Virginia or in the metropolitan area, there were only three or four contractors that did respond to fires. So you really didn't have a big choice. And um, it, it, it worked real well for us. I think that your ambulance idea was brilliant. I know I successfully used it in my business, and I know many other people uh, you know, who did the same thing. It's just one of those very, very valuable uh, nuggets, and that's one of the reasons why you know I kind of, you know, it's interesting. Some of the comments that, that have come in, uh, I like this guy's got a lot of history to share. Uh, it's Pioneers Month this month. These are my favorite shows. You know, people, th this is you, know, you do have the opportunity to influence people, and I think uh, I think it's one of the things Joe and I get a biggest kick out of uh, doing the show. Who have been some of the biggest influences uh, in your business over your uh, business career? Well, when I really got started, one of the first contacts I made, and it was a valuable and still to this day, is Major Long. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that he brought to the table was uh, he called it creative writing. But it was, uh, you know, I would put down on an estimate that I cleaned an antique chair 
and he would say, well, you've got to really embellish on that and tell them what kind of an antique chair. He said, you certainly wouldn't want to charge $10 to clean a, a chair that's worth $1,000. But he taught me a lot about what, how to charge for my service, and I'll never forget that. And another thing, uh, you, I, I think the Unsmoked School, yours was one of the first that I attended. I think Phil McLaughlin was a great influence on me from the standpoint of marketing. Uh, Jim Barrett, a guy that has the number one CR registration uh, today, his marketing was a great help for me. One of the technical people that really helped me early on when back in the early 70s, 70, 70, 71, was a guy by the name of Ned Hopper. Mm-hmm. Sure. He was the technical director for the National Institute of Carpet Cleaning. I could call Ned any time of the day or night because I certainly, they didn't have classes for carpet cleaning, they had classes for spotting. And uh, I would call Ned all hours of the day and night, 24-7, and he would help me. And another guy that really helped me a lot was Ed York. I first met Ed York uh, in Chicago. I attended a national convention there, and when I got to uh, the hotel where they were having it, he had actually been kicked out of the meeting. He was in the lobby. I had no idea who he was, but I really liked what he was saying. And I sat in the lobby and listened to him, and uh, he uh, he was a very interested, interesting and a dynamic person. Uh, after I heard him in Chicago, uh, it was within two weeks, I went out to uh, Fresno to his school. And the first thing I learned out there, Ron Tony, I, I haven't seen him in years, but he taught me how to clean velvet furniture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and truthfully, uh, that was one of the greatest things that ever happened to us was meeting with Ed. And he, he was uh, he was an inspiration, and he was a man before his time. Absolutely. I mean, he, he created, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of things from, um, you know, Steam Services, which was the first catalog for, for products and services, uh, Disaster Cleanup International, um, the IICRC. I mean, he founded all those things, and uh, it was well, nice. He, he, it was he actually, changed my life. He really did. And he used to say, you know, one of the greatest things from my standpoint, he always bragged that I was the first guy east of the Mississippi to come to his school. And uh, I'll never forget that. But uh, Ed York was a real inspiration. I think what was good is uh, last year, actually, Connections honored him and, you know, gave them uh, an award that was very, very uh, well-deserved. Uh, and what, what what really surprises me is the fact that the IICRC, for some reason, cannot bring themselves uh, to acknowledge the person that founded them, which uh, has always uh, bothered me. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the biggest and costliest uh, business mistakes uh, you know that you've made. You know, you talked about not knowing what the uh, a supplemental payment was, and the fact that that cost you five thousand dollars. I mean, what other sorts of business, costly business mistakes uh, have you made that might help others? Not to make. Well, uh, you know, it, it, you you make a mistake every day. I mean, it, it's if you 
if you're active and you're doing things, you can't help but make mistakes, and you, and you certainly have to learn from them. Um, I've made so many, they're too numerous to even talk about, but, you know, just just the simplest things. Uh, I was on a job yesterday, and uh, we're, we're doing a 17-story flood right now, and uh, we had a lot of equipment. I, I know this is very insignificant, but it just shows you what can happen. Um, we had a lot of uh, electrical cords on the floor, and uh, I was with the team. Uh, we were taping those down. We have a uh, it's a stage tape that we use to hold the cords in place where people, if they're walking down the hallway or whatever, they won't catch their foot on the cord. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to tape this cord, and I'm having a really difficult time because I'm putting the tape down and trying to pull it off the reel and put and I saw one of my techs, uh, he uh, took the tape and stuck one end on the fan and pulled out the length that he needed and tore it from the spool and pulled it off the fan and laid it down. And I thought to myself, I've been doing this uh, for, you know, 40 years, and it's amazing just the simplest things. If you pay attention, it's amazing what your employees know. Um some of the people that don't get out there and work every day on the job, um, we, we need to talk to the people, the hands-on people that are doing some of these jobs. It's, it's amazing what some of these people come up with. Those are some of the greatest lessons I've learned, and we learn something every day. What, um, what sort of tech? I the big, go, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, the biggest mistake I ever made in my life um, – uh, as most listeners realize, I'm a real old person, and uh, to me, it's either black or white. Uh, there's, in my lifetime, it's uh, been so damn much gray. It's difficult. I've reached a period where I can't determine who's telling me the truth anymore. But I, I had a job uh, about 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. I did a large fire, and. Uh, uh, my problem was we did it too fast, obviously. It was uh, an establishment that uh, was about 50,000 square feet that had a very severe fire. And one section, it was a modular building. And they called me. I was actually in Vegas uh, shooting crap. So my family, my wife called me and said, you know, you got to come home. you got this loss. I got on the next available plane, came home. I was home in about eight hours and uh, met with the project manager there on the site. He basically asked me if we could do it, and I assured him we could. And We started immediately, and uh, we put the section that was damaged under a negative pressure so it would take all the odor and the activity out that part of the building, and the rest of the building we cleaned. uh, Out of 50,000 feet, we cleaned about 45,000 feet, and... uh, we had about 300 people there, and at the end of the day, when uh, the deal was, uh, they had 500 uh, government uh, engineers that were working in that facility. It was a, a secured premise for the Department of Navy, and they were working on a secret part of the sonar for submarines. Mm-hmm. And it was critical that they have the building open on Monday and uh we we met that responsibility, had it open, 
Anyway, we had a bill that looked like a Sears and Roebuck catalog. It was about $87,000. And um, I take that back. It was actually 127000 And when we tried to settle, I looked at it, and, of course, it was a large bill, and it was a little difficult for them to swallow, and they came back and said, well, you know, we'll we'll offer you about 35000 And I said I wouldn't take that. And it got to where they would wanted to close it at 87000 and I wouldn't accept that. I, uh, most of the listeners should realize in 35 years, I don't have a contract. I, I, if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'll come pretty darn close to doing it, and I expect everybody else to do the same thing. It's a terrible way to run a business. You don't want to do that. But with or without a contract, if the guy's not going to pay you, he, he won't pay you. Anyway, um, a long story short, we uh, I wouldn't accept the 87000 If it was worth 87, it was worth 127 we billed. And I wound up in court, and I had somebody uh, confident. They, they asked me if there was somebody in the marketplace that could uh, write a comparison estimate, and I gave them a name and of a person that I thought would uh, was certainly qualified, and uh, I had an estimate that uh, had uh, almost uh, 275 sheets, and that estimate that compared to that was a one-page sheet, and that sheet came out to be $37,000 compared to my 127. Well, long story short, I get, didn't get paid for that that job. I went to court, and I'm a very poor. Uh, witness i have very little patience uh i guess but anyway the law the, the, the irony of the whole thing is that sometimes you know you can be penny wise and dollar foolish and uh you want to make sure that you have your bad little lines drawn and you, you know who you recommend and um it's um it was a rude awakening for me that was uh and after the case at the end of the day the Attorney that defended the person I was suing came to me and said, Mr. Orndorff, and uh, you know, I have to say this that normally 95% of the time the law, the law works in this country, but in your case, it didn't work this day. And he apologized. That, that made me feel a little bit better, but it didn't, it didn't, uh, it didn't put any money in my pocket. Right. But um, I think the irony, you, you have to be careful how you, how you do things in life and you want to make sure that you possibly have a contract and dot all the I's and cross all the T's. That was a bad experience for me. You know, I know going back to your, your being an early adopter, one of the other things that you early adopted was heat drying. And I know that that was a piece of equipment that, uh, you know, set you back uh, a significant amount of money, maybe three-quarters of $100,000 or somewhere in, in that range. But I know that you had had an earlier experience with uh, heat drying, uh, and I, I'd like you to tell the listeners uh, about that. Well, uh, here in Manassas, about 20 years ago, we had a new courthouse built. It was in the winter, and uh, uh, about a week before they opened, they had a really severe water loss. And it was back when we were actually using Sears and Roebuck dehumidifiers, and we were using box fans. It was maybe 25 years ago. Anyway, uh, I realized we had a large structure to dry, so I went out and I bought three 
250,000 BTU propane heaters and took them into the building. And then part of the building where it was not wet and created what I thought I called then a heat chamber. And I would heat that chamber up and then I would exhaust everything at the top. It was an atrium kind of a building. And at the top of this atrium, they had these huge windows that would open. And I would heat the building up, and then we'd open the windows and turn on all these fans that we had and supposedly blow all the air out. I didn't know what I was blowing out, but it, it, it kind of made sense. And we dried that building in about 24 hours. About two months later at Christmas time, or maybe a month later at Christmas, we had a, a really bad school flood. It was about 40,000 feet that flooded one-story building, and um, they called, and we went over, and I got the same idea. I went down to the dry end of the building and took that heat, uh, heated up an area, and then uh, we would take the fans and pull that hot air down through the building and exhaust it at the other end, and honest to God, when it went out, that, that air was carrying so much condensation, we had little ice pellets that it looked like it snowed. I, I actually have photographs of that. Well, I was so pleased about that that uh, I went to uh, the next uh, national meeting of AIDS back when now you all call it RIA, but it was called AIDS. I went to the convention, and I happened to know Claude Blackwell, Blackman real well, and uh, I was so excited about it, I told him, I said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I heated these buildings up and drew air through and actually dried them. Now, of course, back then, the only moisture meter we had was that penetrating stick. Right. It didn't have anything any more complicated than that. And I was so excited that we dried these buildings, and when I told them about it, uh, they said, oh, my God, you could have created so much mold in those buildings. You, don't, you really don't realize how fortunate you were. And uh, it scared me so badly, I came back and I told my wife, I said, boy, were we lucky. Uh, I really could have created a real problem in those buildings because uh, that heat could have created so much humidity in there and we'd have had mold everywhere. So I, 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 within about a month, I sold both of the, all three of those heaters and didn't do any more heat drying until, of course, Charlie Creasy, Creasy came on board and we are we have water rate equipment that we use, and uh, so it, it's the irony of the whole thing is it's funny how things come around, but we we used heat drying damn near thirty years ago, and you were successful with it. But what happens is, and because common sense at work, and I think that the important nugget is that you were talked out of doing something by someone who probably had less experience and less knowledge about the subject than you did because they didn't get to share the same experience that you did. Well, now we're going to go into what we call a roundup, so just hang on a second. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw
Okay, I think what we'll do is we'll go to uh, Radio Joe first. Uh, Joe, any comments or final questions for the guest? I've got a list, but I'll have to go to one here. <laughs> it's been great, uh, very enjoyable listening. And um, I guess the most important one for the people that I work with would be um, what type of advice would you give to people who are just starting out right now uh, in the fire and water damage restoration business or the mold remediation business, whatever? What what type of business advice would you give to those folks? Oh, Joe, I, I, I think that anybody that starts a business today, it, it's a difficult climate, uh, number one, but there's still a lot of opportunities out there for the guy that's willing to willing to really work at it. And, uh, you know, uh, this is an exciting industry. Uh, uh, we haven't got all the answers, but uh, I think that you want to make sure that your spouse, uh, if you're married, uh, she has to understand that uh, she's got to be a partner in this deal. This is a 24 seven, uh, industry. It's, uh, you know, you can't plan a fire. You can't plan a water loss. And uh, I, I think the most important thing that any any man or woman is going to go into this industry has to understand that uh, they they it has to have a good working relationship with both to make it. Dieter, That's a great piece of advice. Thank you, Dieter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and again, that is certainly not my area of expertise, but um, it is certainly interesting to, and I love history, uh, you know, how we started. You know, today we have black boxes and we measure this and that and that and that and that in the air. In the old days, you had to go in there, make an assessment, uh, maybe use, uh, definitely use your eyes, your ears, and your nose. And it said, hey, you know, this is different than the other one. Uh, I remember the days when the first modern respirators were developed, and this goes back 40 years ago. Uh, I worked with a local company over here and one in uh, north of here, who cares? And um, the research uh, was done, and uh, which these guys didn't know. I mean, they didn't know it. I'm not saying that they were stupid. They didn't know it because it just, the information was just not there. And just for Joe was one question. When was the due date for the, um, the lead um, abatement uh, workers? Yesterday, April 22nd. April 22nd. Now, here comes something that you will never, ever forget for the rest of your life. You know whose birthday it was yesterday? Lenin. Uh, very good. <laughs> Vladimir Lenin, Ulyanovich. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so I don't know whether that was done on purpose. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, some of us think so, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> uh, I, I, have this, I have this crazy information, uh, which is absolutely useless, but I do remember it. And then we had, what, on the 20th was Adolf Hitler's birthday, and on the 15th was 
Nikita Khrushchev's birthday. So they all the bad guys are together. Hey, hang on there, Dieter. I was in the 17th. <laughs> <laughs> my, sister's, my sister's on the 18th. She's complaining. <laughs> well, thanks again, Dieter. Okay. All right. Well, I guess going back to Greg, first of all, Greg, you know, we appreciate you uh, doing the interview. Is there anything that you would like to add? No, Cliff, I, I, I think uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all. Uh, you know, the thing that really worries me, that we're in an industry that you can't go to school to learn how to do it. Um, I think it's kind of on-the-job training. And uh, there's not enough opportunity for people that have really been out in the field doing the work to have an exchange where they can tell other people about the things that they've learned and the, and the mistakes they've made. Um, I think we'd be a much better industry if, if we had something, some kind of an exchange. Like that. Uh, I, the other thing that I, I raise a lot of hell about is the certification. I think uh, for a guy to go to a one-day class and become certified, I think with that he, he should have some previous experience in a company that does whatever uh, he's trying to become certified for, certifying that he has had some adequate experience on the job training, then I think that would qualify him to become certified. Uh, I, I think it's more than just sitting in a classroom and having somebody uh, teach, whether it's a day or two day. I think one of the greatest things we have, in, have had in our industry is the CR program, where it's a week-long program, and there's a lot of intense learning, and, and there's a lot of hands-on guys talking to one another and explaining how they do things. Uh, that's so important. But uh, we, we, we need to really address that because... Uh, we still have a young industry, and um, there are a lot of people in this industry that have a ton of wealth, and it hasn't been tapped. and needs to be. Great. Thanks for uh, tapping some of it here. We appreciate that. That's what we're trying to do. That. You know, um, actually, I just wanted to read something. Actually, Guest 16 said, thank you, thank you. What is the measure of a man but the depth of his experience and humility to, to teach others? Uh, it's pretty well said. Uh, Greg, if I had a wet building in the Virginia, Maryland, or anywhere in the United States, how would I get in touch with your company in order to dry it for me? Well, uh, you'd call A1 Flood Tech at uh, 703-361-2156. Or we have a website that you can go on. Um, it's uh, you want that website number? Yes, sir. Let, let me let me give it to you. Uh, actually, it's a niche son. This one's a, it's www.a1floodtech.com. Okay, repeat it again. www.a1floodtech.com. Com. Okay. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank our special guests, Greg Orndorff Sr., my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, environmental Ann Koalecki, our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon when we interview Hal Levin on the next broadcast of 
IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.